Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. This week's program, posted December 29, 2017, is a holiday encore of our August 25, 2017 conversation about a series of WPJ blog posts on the role of the multinational, multi-ethnic Arctic Council, not only for the environment and people of that critical region, the indigenous in particular, but as a model for international cooperation and coordination worldwide. We'll also spotlight top features in the new WPJ winter issue, Coverline Native Voices, featuring the problems, protests, and progress of indigenous peoples around the globe. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. In the past 20 years, the Arctic Council has evolved in the main forum for Arctic issues. The Arctic Council has promoted common Arctic interests worthwhile. It is my wish that we will continue to work together to foster prosperity and sustainability of the Arctic people and environment. Finland's Foreign Minister Timo Soini this May assumed the rotating chairmanship of the Arctic Council after two years of U.S. leadership at this unique international body whose members also include Russia, six other northern nation states, and six permanent organizations of indigenous peoples, plus various observer states and organizations in six major working groups. But the Council's importance extends far beyond the Arctic region, which is both a bellwether and a catalyst of accelerating climate change worldwide. And the Council itself is seen by many as a model for organizations of international coordination and cooperation in other regions and on other issues around the globe. There's even a suggestion it should be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. As part of the World Policy Institute's Arctic in Context project, the World Policy website is featuring a 13-part blog on the Council by Winter 2017 Arctic Research Fellows from the International Policy Institute at the University of Washington's Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies. The lead article is headlined, The Arctic Council, a Unique Institution in 21st Century International Relations, and I discussed it recently for this podcast with Dr. Nadine Fabi, who heads the Arctic Fellows Program. Dr. Fabi, welcome to World Policy on Air. Hi, David, and thank you. Your blog series grows from a larger effort to bring academic expertise to bear on real-world policy problems, a challenge voiced by the head of the Carnegie Corporation in New York. Talk more about that. There's many U.S. foundations that have an enormous interest in and are committed to supporting institutions of higher ed as they engage in research, writing, and other activities that bring new thinking to global challenges. And so this is what the Carnegie Corporation of of New York um, did just back a couple of years ago. They launched this special initiative, and that initiative is called Bridging the Gap. And the idea was that they wanted to support the application of academic knowledge to real-world problems. And Carnegie was aware, as many are out there, that in the social science departments, a lot of times the research and the research that's being conducted, the reward system, tends to favor theory over policy. 
And so you, you know, get these products where, um, you know, even the general public are reading and thinking, well, what on earth does this have to do with, with how the real world works? And they're both critical. I mean, we need the theory to provide the deeper thinking and the analysis, but the policy gives us a practical application of those ideas. So Carnegie felt there's this imbalance in the social sciences, too much theory, not enough policy. So they launched this competitive initiative just a few years back, and it was um, designed for schools like the Jackson School of International Studies, designed for schools that were already existing, already doing the work. But the idea was, okay, you guys, um, we want you to try to reimagine how you look at these global issues, to try to imagine new curriculum activities that have policy relevance. And, and here's what I think is really interesting is, how can you imagine research projects? So in our case, you know, research projects having to do with the international world, international relations, um, international thinking that challenge conventional concepts, that challenge conventional frameworks, that challenge our assumptions, um, and that address policymakers and the general public, that bring together policymakers and practitioners, and that focus on special issues of international importance. So I think here, when we look at something like the Arctic, this is precisely what's what the Arctic Council and the Arctic are doing for the field of international relations is allowing us to kind of use that study, use what it is that we're looking at, use what we're trying to analyze, and really challenge global thinking more broadly. And then in the Jackson School of International Studies, so we then had to take that, that um, grant and, and uh, those monies and decide, okay, how are we going to focus these? And so we came up with several key themes in foreign policy and themes we thought were really interesting and innovative, and those being religion, space, cybersecurity, and then the Arctic. Um, and so the idea was how can we address foreign relations with a new kind of lens, a new approach, or in the case of the Arctic, how can we bring new regions and new international organizations like this Arctic Council into the bigger discussion of international relations. And so it's really served to inform students outside this particular field, because it's a small field, about new ways of looking at international relations. And I think there has really been the exciting piece of this. Looking at the Arctic Council specifically, let's start with its original concept from Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, of all people, following a 51-day disappearance. Tell us that story. What's important about that 51-day disappearance is that, and the fascinating story here, is that on the heels of that, Gorbachev delivered this um, speech in Murmansk commonly referred to as a Murmansk speech. And I have it in front of me, and I can tell you it says that it was presented at a ceremonial meeting on the occasion of the presentation of the Order of Lenin and the Gold Star Medal to the city of Murmansk. This is October 1, 1987. So what's the value of this speech? You know, when I look at this speech, and again, I've got a copy here, it is lengthy. It's a small booklet, but it's 31 pages. So it was a, <clears throat> certainly not something tweetable. So he gave quite a lengthy speech. And, and why this speech is often referred to by scholars in um, Arctic studies is because it really provided the inspiration for the Arctic Council 
Because in this speech, <clears throat> it is the first speech given by a major political figure. And remember, it's 1987. So we're just on the heels of, um, you know, the Cold War. And <clears throat> in the speech, he looks at, he challenges kind of conventional military security, which is how, which is how the Axis and Allied States were looking at the Arctic. And he says, no, let's, let's look at the Arctic differently. Let's look at it as a zone of peace. But what's very unique about the speech is that for the first time in history, again, for the first time in a major speech, he talks about the environment as being the critical focus for security. You don't see that in a speech until this time. So he basically opens up this idea that what if, what if we just put these military concerns aside for now? We look at this shared region where the North America, you know, North America and Eurasia kind of all come together. You tilt the globe. There we are, you know, all at the top of the globe in very, very close proximity. How do we take that, that, that home, that place, that region, that part of the world? And, and again, make it a zone of peace. Make it a place where we're working together collaboratively, collaboratively and cooperatively. And again, he, he says, why don't we use the environment as our point of focus? Because, of course, that's somewhat less controversial than other areas. But the, the other thing that he does in the speech is he mentions, for the first time in a post-colonial world, indigenous peoples <clears throat> and the importance of working with the indigenous concerns in the Arctic. So what is... The story of that speech is that once given, it really inspired and, and opened up some eyes in terms of where we might move in the future in terms of international organizations. So Finland, and you mentioned Finland at the beginning, taking the chair, having the chair of the Arctic Council right now, Finland being a, a smaller soft power decided this was a way to really play an important role, took Gorbachev's speech and wrote a letter to all of the heads of the eight Arctic nations and said, hey, let's all meet. Let, let's see what we can do together to move ahead on this. And indeed, they did meet and, and um, drafted um, the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy, which becomes the precursor to the Arctic Council. And why this is so fascinating is because it's the first such international document written, again, on the heels of the Cold War, but also the first drafted in consultation with indigenous peoples. That makes it in, entirely a first in, in terms of international organizations and relations. Now some current day basics. Besides Russia, Finland, and the U.S., what are the Council's member states and the permanent organizations of indigenous people involved? Okay, so we have we have Finland, who currently has a chair and, and played a key role in moving these discussions toward the Arctic Council. Finland then worked very closely with Canada and Russia, playing a ball playing a key role in forming the Arctic Council. So that brings in Canada. Um, the Arctic Council the Declaration of the Founding is called the Ottawa Declaration and was signed in Ottawa in '96. And then you have Iceland, um, <clears throat> Iceland, and then the um, Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, Denmark. 
And then the indigenous organizations, again, if you kind of turn that map and look at all these nation states, the indigenous organizations basically have representation that covers all of those nation states um, and even into some of the subarctic areas. So I mentioned there were three indigenous organizations right at the founding of the protection strategy in the council. And those were um, Bautzi Russian indigenous peoples, um, the Inuit Circumpolar Council, and the Sami Council. So those three were all there at the signing and during all of the several-year negotiation process in developing the Arctic Council. Then three more permanent participants joined in. And this, I think, is really interesting, is that the Aleut, the Athabascan and the Gwich'in, they all joined once the Arctic Council was formed. So here they saw the Arctic Council. They realized that if they want a voice on the international stage, they need to be members. So they formed organizations specifically to have a seat on the council. And what that means, David, I mean, you can't just say, oh, we want to have an organization. Um, you know, let's put this together. In order for an indigenous organization to sit on the Arctic Council, it cannot, it must represent more than one country. So the Aleut, for example, is um, Russia and the U.S. Athabascan, Canada and the U.S. Gwich'in, Canada and the U.S. So Inuit, Canada, U.S., Russia, Greenland. So each indigenous organization must represent more than one country, or in the case of Russia, many, many indigenous organizations within that country. So in other words, just the formulation of those organizations is, is quite a challenge. And to think these three later permanent participants to join would do this strate strategically so that they could have a greater voice in international affairs, I think is really interesting. Simply having groups of indigenous people represented alongside major nations is unique, but how much power do they actually exercise? I mean, do they have votes equal to that of the nation states? Mm, so, for, so this question, David, I, I just have to pause for a minute because um, this is my particular area of research and um, a, an area and something that I find very exciting about the development of the Arctic Council and where it's going. It's also an area where the Arctic Fellows, the students I worked with, often kind of roll their eyes and, and um, give me a little bit of grief for, for um, wearing two rose-colored of glasses and looking at this. So I have to start by saying that, you know, there's good news and there's bad news here. The, what Indigenous peoples are achieving on the Arctic Council is is absolutely something we've not seen and is worth consideration and is making changes in terms of international processes. But what I want to point out first is the not-so-good news is that just because that is happening doesn't mean that, and this is where some of the critique comes in, doesn't mean that on the ground level in the communities problems and issues has have been solved that have occurred out of you know these former colonial situations so you have for example in the arctic today the highest rates of suicide among the indigenous populations highest rates of substance abuse enormous uh, critical issues food security issues a lack in educational capacity in canada's arctic the last figure I saw was 25% of the students are graduating from high school. So these are, at the community level, um, 
in very serious social issues. This doesn't, I mean, just as with any nation state, you know, we can say, okay, Canada's fantastic healthcare system um, and, and other attributes we can say about our individual countries doesn't mean that on the ground level everybody's doing well. So when I say that at the international level, what's occurring with the Arctic Council is pretty profound. I just want to be clear that that's separated from necessarily what is trickling down to the community levels. So they're really kind of two different things as they are, you know, in the rest of our domestic and international realms, two different sort of areas. So um, so that that's one thing that I want to say and that <clears throat> in terms of the Arctic Council itself, there is a mandate in the Ottawa Declaration that local and traditional knowledge will be fully integrated into the working groups of the Arctic Council. No, they're not. Of course they're not. We haven't made it that far yet. Um, the permanent participants still struggle to get the proper financial support so that they can even participate. So there, there, there are some downsides. But to the, to the positives that are occurring, um, there, aren't, there is not actually a vote on the Arctic Council, so no, the Indigenous peoples don't have a vote, nor do the Arctic Council members. But no project may go ahead, no um, agreement or declaration may go ahead without the full support of the Arctic Indigenous peoples, without the full support, that is, of the permanent participants. So that is, so their involvement is is absolutely key to any decision-making. Um, the other thing I think is that we have to look at the Arctic Council and say, okay, again, is it perfect in terms of the, in, in terms of the effectiveness of that inclusion? Again, no, of course not. There's still tremendous work being done within the Council to get that traditional and local knowledge incorporated into the workings, to have full participation, to um, to look at many of the processes in slightly different ways than, than might be looked at otherwise. But I would argue that progress is being made, and the advantage here was that it was written into the original vision. This isn't something we're trying to change. Hey, why don't we think about this? No, we're trying to go back to what was the original vision, um, and that's consistently being worked on. Um, just to give you a couple of, I think, really interesting points, you might have been aware, um, and, and some of our listeners I'm sure may have been aware, that the Arctic Council can also, um, can also have that applications for non-Arctic nation states to sit on as observers, and there they just observe. Well, you may, may be aware that the EU has tried, I believe, twice now to achieve that status, to be able to be an observer on the Arctic Council. In both cases, the EU is rejected. And the EU was rejected specifically because it was not respecting, in particular, the Inuit economic system, which includes sealing. So the EU banned the import of seal products, and their application to the Arctic Council was turned down on that basis. So if you think about that, here you have the Inuit and others, but the Inuit are a small body of people, just about 160,000 in the world. You've got the EU, a massive um, uh, conglomerate of these uh, nation states, definitely a powerful body. 
And here you have, you know, almost like David and Goliath, the, the Inuit and other parties saying, no, this application is not appropriate because it's not appropriate to the vision of the Arctic Council, which is, which is the inclusion of the values, of the worldviews, of the economies of the Arctic indigenous people. That's pretty amazing. I mean, where else do we see this globally where indigenous organizations, as according to their values, have effectively blocked nation states or groupings of nation states from participation in a major forum? That's so, remarkable. Uh, yeah, I think it is, yeah. Um, what, would you, so what, mm-hmm, sorry. what would you say are the main achievements of the Arctic Council for the region in its first 20 years, and, and most notably in the last two years under U.S. leadership? Yeah, and this is a um, this is a this is a tough question because I think the Arctic Council, to my mind, has achieved so much. Um, and um, just to think about it, if you, well, to, to just continue on the topic we're on for a minute, um, and then I'll go into the last two chairmanships. Uh, there's no question that one of its greatest achievements is is through the work of the permanent participants, um, how they have effectively um, lobbied for their um, for stronger involvement, a stronger voice on the Arctic Council, how they're incorporating new worldviews into international relations. So I think that is one of the tremendous achievements of the Arctic Council that we've just touched on. Um, if you look at over the last four years, Canada first had the chairmanship and then just came to the U.S. these past two years, has gone to Finland. Um, so just starting kind of looking at North America, and I also represent the Canadian Studies here in the Jackson School, so I must say something about Canada. So during Canada's two-year chairmanship, a couple of the key, I would say, <clears throat> key achievements were that um, Canada appointed an Inuk uh, woman to be chair of the Arctic Council, Leona Glukak. And this is certainly the first time in the history of the Council that an Indigenous representative has actually chaired the Council. Canada, during its chairmanship, also spearheaded the founding of the Arctic Economic Council and also developed, um, or during that time, was developed what is called traditional knowledge principles of the Arctic Council. And that is that these... Um, you know, indigenous and local knowledge, while they are supposed to be part of the Arctic Council workings, of course, this has been a challenge. Um, but new principles that say, look, in any working group, um, you must speak to how you're going to incorporate uh, indigenous and local knowledge. And if, it, if you do not, you must explain why that's the case. So that's a pretty big step forward. Um, Going into the U.S. chairmanship, I mean, again, so many different, um, there's so many aspects, um, so many achievements, but I would certainly say, I think we would have to say that the third legally binding agreement of the Arctic Council, which occurred during the U.S. chairmanship, is certainly a major achievement, and that one is the agreement on enhancing international Arctic scientific cooperation. So the idea here is, it took them three years to develop this agreement and during the major period that the U.S. was chair. And so the idea is to eliminate barriers to scientific research, promote education and training. So I think this is, 
this will allow, you know, even a greater, um, greater collaboration across the nations. Another is the Arctic Council had, had um, asked the International Maritime Organization to work on standards, international standards for the Arctic region because interestingly, and this would make perfect sense, in the Arctic Ocean has been frozen. There's really not viable passage other than mostly, you know, local cargo transport and so on. But as 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 the um, sea ice melts, as that ocean um, begins to melt and be exposed, there's of course there's of course significant uh, significant more shipping occurring. So the Arctic Council called on the International Maritime Organization instead. We've really got to have standards for the Arctic region because they just don't exist in in the current documents. So just this January, 2017 in January, the Polar Code was adopted. And again, you'll hear critiques about the Polar Code. It doesn't um, ban heavy um, heavy fuel use. But again, I think we have to say it's a first step. This is the first code we've had for the Arctic. And it's a first and critical step in protecting the people and the environment. So I think that would be a second I'd draw attention to. Um, and a third would be very interesting. The um, six permanent participants, as I've just explained, it isn't necessarily their participation is part of what is the Arctic Council and what ought to be the Arctic Council. At the same time, that can be good in theory, that can be good on paper, but, but in actuality, how, how does that occur when there's significant barriers to participation? And those barriers are often the funding to get to the meetings, the funding to participate in the working groups. There's over 100 committees on the Arctic Council right now, so really how does that play out? <clears throat> so something that the permanent participants did um, and launched actually just in May at the ministerial meetings is a new fund called the Algu Fund. And this is from a Sami word, and it means beginning. And the idea is that this fund, the permanent participants want to raise a certain amount of money, and I'm blanking the, the amount that that is, but a significant amount of money that then can be used as an endowment so that it can ensure their full participation in the Arctic Council because this has been one of the biggest challenges. So this is really, I think, a, a very exciting initiative um, and an initiative that will, that will change, um, I think, how we see the work coming out of the Council. So there's three. There's many, many more, but I think those three speak to kind of different areas, um, different areas of impact and, um, and are fairly significant in what they mean for the rest of the world. Some of your posts analyze how some national and subnational entities are already being influenced by the permanent participants and other Arctic indigenous groups. South Korea, for one example. Tell us about that. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think South Korea is such a fascinating um, example. I was just in July, in fact, that's when I think you were trying to get a hold of me, at uh, the third annual Korean um, academic, uh, Korean Arctic Academy. <clears throat> and the minute I tell people this, they say, Korean Arctic Academy, what on earth? What's Korea's interest in the Arctic? Well, you know, of course, it's shipping and, and um, resources and energy resources as well. 
But I think, um, and one of our fellows, I think his blog is perhaps the last to come out at the beginning of September, and he's in particular focusing on South Korea. And, and we've been working a fair bit with the Korea Maritime Institute that's heading this up and drafting their own Arctic policy, by the way. What is so interesting here and in all of my interactions with the Korea Maritime Institute and the Korean government is they know that to be part of the Arctic Council, to be an observer, and they were not immediately let on to the Arctic Council. They had to apply a couple of times. Um, to be part of the Arctic Council, that application includes that you need to be working with indigenous peoples, you need to be putting something back in the pot, you need to be cognizant of different worldviews and how those will become part of the work you do. Um, and the Koreans, I feel, have taken this mandate very, very seriously. So they have, and this is all part of their work on the Arctic Council, they've started this Arctic Academy. And when you go to the Arctic Academy, they bring 15 Korean students who pretty much have no interest in the Arctic or haven't heard of it, just 15 Korean students, and then 15 students from around the circumpolar world, and they're doing everything possible um, to recruit indigenous students from the circumpolar world. <clears throat> so their effort is to get to know one another, to build networks between young Koreans and between um, residents in the Arctic for for the future, for working together in the future. And I think it's because they know, because they know culturally this is part of their cultural approach that we aren't going to have any success in working together if we don't create those relations. Hmm. So they are also working with the Aleut that I mentioned who headed up the Solgu Fund. Um, they're also working with the Aleut um, right up the coast here to bring in indigenous mapping um, and to be able to use that mapping and kind of integrate it with Western ways of mapping um, in order to determine both fishing routes, uh, not shipping routes, um, fishing resources, but to incorporate, to actually incorporate this into their own mapping so that the Koreans are seeing and looking and understanding the region Energy is also a topic of considerable concern and debate in the Arctic, as in so many other areas, but also of hope. Say more about that and the Arctic Council connection, the Arctic Energy Summit, a, a platform with, with some problems. Back in 2004, the Arctic Council produced a pretty profound document called Impacts of a Warming Arctic. And I say it's profound because... It's in that document, just in the first couple pages that you, you come to, where it's stated that with this several-year study that hundreds of scientists participated in, indigenous peoples participated in, took a number of years to put together this impacts of a warming climate, warming Arctic, produced by the Arctic Council. One of the first sentences in there and realizations by the scientists was that the Arctic is warming at twice the rate of the rest of the planet. This caused two things. <laughs> it caused absolute, as you can imagine, considerable concern in the Arctic. And out of that, um, there was actually a lawsuit that went forward by a key Inuit leader from Canada to sue the U.S. government as a result of its contributions to climate change. 
um, that woman, Sheila Watt-Coutier, was actually nominated with Al Gore for the Nobel Peace Prize for her work. And taking that document and bringing that realization to the world and, and, and actually uh, putting through the very first effort to sue a nation state for its contributions to climate change. There have been a few now since. So really um, kind of broke through a barrier there. So that came out in 2004 where, <clears throat> again, there's this concern. My God, what does this mean for the Arctic? Then just a few years later, the U.S. Geological Survey brought out a report and study, and that basically um, was an accounting of uh, kind of a, um, an appraisal of what was suspected, um, the estimates of undiscovered oil and gas in the Arctic, what we assumed, um, you know, what, what did that look like? What were those estimates? And those estimates were significantly high. So when you put together this news that the Arctic is melting, then just a few years later that there are significant reserves of oil and gas, undiscovered oil and gas in the Arctic, this created from about 2004 to 2014 a tremendous focus on the Arctic. And this is where you would hear things, I don't know if you heard, like you would hear the, the Arctic cold rush and, um, you know, this is when the Russians planted the flag on the, you know, beneath the uh, North Pole and just a huge amount of interest. And so what has happened since um, with the drop in oil prices, and, and this comes back to one of the blogs by one of the fellows, Michael Brown, is his suggestion then, so it, it's true that since 2013, 2014 now, We've pulled back, and we've pulled back because there's a glut of oil, the prices are low, um, it just isn't, it, it isn't, it, it isn't the place to do the exploration now. So what Michael Brown is suggesting, I think is very interesting, is what, what is, what will happen during this lull? And there is a lull right now. Will there be perhaps considerable more research into renewables? Um, <clears throat> and new implementations of new energy sources um, that could reduce government attention in the region. And this we just don't know. I mean, we know what's potentially up there. The access to it is not easy. Um, and, and at the moment, just, just simply the interest isn't there because it doesn't need to be. Uh, so do we have a window of opportunity where perhaps um, we may not return to the same level of interest in Arctic resources. So that's, a, that's an unknown, but I am certainly not an expert in, in that area or on the summit. One of your blog posts asks the most fundamental question of all, is the Arctic Council still a visionary leader? And it uh, continues the critique of long-term strategy hindered by the regular alternations of leadership and uh, a growing agenda. Say more about that. Yeah, and I think, um, <clears throat> and here you're referring to the blog post uh, that's by our fellow Brandon Ray. And one of the things that he is looking at here, but he's also, um, he drew a fair bit of his research from the U.S. Office of Government Accountability. You know, what's actually happening on the ground? What is, um, where's the implementation? What this is, I think, in a nutshell, is that the council, and, and what Brandon's argument is, is that the council is producing far more recommendations 
than can be realistically implemented. And many of them are too broad in scope. Um, many of them aren't necessarily readily accessible to policymakers. So his, um, his argument is that really the recommendations ought to be reduced in the ministerial uh, declarations. He also critiques the need, um, also critiques even the two-year uh, cycle of the Arctic Council. And I think in part what Ray is suggesting is that in addition to this two-year revolving chairmanship where the nation state gets to make up, not on its own, but gets to make up in consultation what are going to be our priorities. You know, Finland said one of its priorities is going to be education, for example. What are going to be our priorities? Those are made up on a two-year basis. So what if, and there's also plans, like a different five-year plans for the council. So what if there's more of a 20-year plan, a longer-term vision? And I think in this particular blog post, what's interesting is Ray is going back to the Gorbachev speech and saying, let's tap back into that. Let's go back to that original vision and make sure that we continue to tap into that as we work forward. Um, I think this is occurring. There's absolutely no end of, um, you know, functional processes that could be made better, that could be more streamlined, that could be more made more effective. Um, but, but I think uh, drawing actually on another student's blog, um, uh, Ian Hanna, who's with Marine Affairs here, one of the things that he did in his blog was he traces um, he, he traces one of the documents from the Arctic Council. So here again is a critique: too many documents, too many reports, too many assessments. You know, not where do you focus? <clears throat> But he actually traces, and I've done this in some of my own work, trace some of the policy coming out of the Arctic Council. And while you're never going to see this in the New York Times or anywhere else, because it's, it's, not, even, it, it's not the kind of thing that draws you know, great interest, and it's not the maker of um, change that you see, dramatic change, let's say. But if you trace some of these documents and reports, you see how, how civil society how environmental groups, how indigenous peoples, how senators, how representatives are taking those documents and then presenting them. Um, uh, Ian Hanna discusses how one of these documents was taken to the U.S. federal government. And while we don't know what, the what is going to happen as a result of that, um, he notes how it was received and how this communication might then affect funding allocation for icebreakers, for example, or, um, or uh, new policies to limit different shipping, uh, shipping through different vulnerable areas. So that's just all to say that while I think those critiques are uh, valid, that there is also so much we don't see. And some of those smaller, you know, whatever you want to call them, policy activist pieces are pushing agendas forward. And I do think there's no question they're moving. They're, they're moving in a, in a direction where the Arctic Council is building in capacity and building in its vision over the long term. But many, many different ways we could, we could move to get there faster. Dr. Fabi, thank you. You're so welcome. Dr. Nadine C. Fabi heads the Arctic Fellows Program of the International Policy Institute at the University of Washington's Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies. The World Policy website is featuring a 13-part series on the Arctic Council by the program's Winter 2017 Research Fellows, 
beginning with one titled The Arctic Council, a Unique Institution in 21st Century International Relations. That was a holiday encore posting of our August 25th, 2017 podcast. Featured in the new WPJ winter issue, Coverline Native Voices, you'll find an inside account of struggles behind the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights and articles about a flawed treaty in New Zealand, rediscovered native roots in Norway, and the viral battle being waged by Bedouin Arabs. Plus, Portugal's economic prospects, Nigeria's growing cinema industry, Nollywood, and much more. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Jessica Laudis, Managing Editor Laurel Jerombeck, Podcast Producer Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern. Happy New Year!